So there was a... uh, There was a minister who had an unbelievably profound career. He was 80 years of following Jesus. 70 of those years he served in ministry. Probably one of, if not the most distinguished evangelical leader of the 20th century. And on this day, on a final day, he wanted to give his concluding sermon. Everything that he has learned in his life distilled down to one sermon. Everything that he's learned from walking with Jesus in a final message. So his name, John Stott, he said this. This is his opening line. He goes, I want to share with you how my mind has come to rest as I approach the end of my pilgrimage on earth. And in a room like this, I mean, you could hear a pin drop. Everybody's like, oh, this is it. This is shut. Everybody shut up. This is it. They were ready. You guys want to know what he said? One person, I guess. (laughs) This is what he said. He goes, God wants his people to become like Christ. (gasps) God wants his people to become like Christ. 80 years of faithful, faithful ministry reflected and whittled down to God wants his people to become like Christ. Now, if I could be honest, the first time I heard that, there was part of me who was like, really, stop? Like, you should have just thrown out, like, WWJD bracelets. Like, that was it? Man, this is what I want to do on my last day. Like, what, that's what he should have done. But the more I sat with these words, the more I came to understand that what he has seen as most needed is often neglected. Meaning, I know for myself and probably for the majority of us, that we aspire to make great change. It's a very millennial thing. It's a very 2017 thing. Let's make some change. Cause, cause, cause. We want to make change and influence in our communities and our places of work. So with that, then, we're bubbling over with, oh, like, who am I supposed to do this for? Who am I supposed to influence? Where am I supposed to influence? What am I supposed to influence? When am I supposed to influence? But here's the thing. The Bible spends little to no time with those things. The Bible spends a whole lot of time with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit focusing on influencing you and changing you. See, we're very, very wrapped up in doing. The Spirit of God wants us to be wrapped up in becoming, in becoming. See, I'd be curious, when was the last time or have you ever asked the question, when am I becoming? Have you sat down for a moment, did a whole look in the mirror thing with an open journal and a peppermint latte, and you're like, when am I becoming? Who am I becoming? One of my favorite things in the entire world, and this is going to sound crazy, but one of my favorite things in the entire world are bonsai trees, but not like the, not like the little like Mr. Miyagi with a rake, and he's like trimming it outside, Karate Kid style. No, 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 no. If you have not seen a 150-year-old oak or red maple bonsai tree, you haven't lived. And I make you a promise, if you see one at a botanical garden sometime, your life will change, guaranteed. Here's why. Here's the fascinating things, or fascinating about bonsai trees. You guys ready for this? (laughs) Yes, we're more excited for that. Here's what's fascinating about bonsais. Um... They're grown in such a way, they're harvested in such a way that they think they're 100 feet tall. They, 
that they think they're a hundred feet tall. They, they think they're fully grown. That guy just got saved. Yes, Lord. Bring it. Preach, Pastor. So he thinks he's a hundred feet tall. The tree thinks that. Now, don't ask me how they're, they're, they've evolved this way or what the, what the farmer has done, but they have no idea that they're toddler size. The tree just doesn't know. So, all that to say is they are blind to what they are becoming. They're thinking they're immense in strength and in length when they're actually two feet tall. It's our hope for our small community that we're not blind to what we're becoming. John Stott warns us in our, in our verses tonight also seek to sober us of that very thing. So let's read starting in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you've spent some time reading the Bible and know anything about 1 Thessalonians, it's written with an incredible sense of urgency. It's very urgent. You're going to pick that up. Verse 1 says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how we ought to walk, basically live, and to please God just as you are doing, so that you do so more and more and more and more. For you know what instructions we have given you through the Lord Jesus. And here, get this. You guys ready for this? For this is the will of God. You guys ready? Get your moleskins out. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. This is the will of God. How many people are in here like, what's the will of God for my life? This. Paul tells us, growing in Christ-likeness, sanctification, set apart, cut apart, unique, dedicated. So hopefully we're starting to see the theme here, Right? Because all of this means holiness. If you have a journal or not or a pen, just write it on your face or whatever it is. Holiness, holiness, holiness. What God says his will for our entire existence is the command to become holy. So it would not make a lick of sense to spend weeks on seeking a greater awareness of the Holy Spirit and to not discuss holiness. It's in his name. His very title alone. Only three times in the Old Testament is referred to as Holy Spirit. Close to a hundred times in the New Testament, he is reverently referred to as the Holy Spirit. Now what's interesting is we started to do this, your pastors, what we've noticed as we started this series, there was more and more people who were like, yes, let's get stirred up about the Holy Spirit. This is what God has for us. But what I think took some people in our church by storm was that the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, wanted to stir us up in pursuing holiness, rightness, and purity within our own lives. I think that threw some of our people off. It's like, You see, in order to have effective lives, the Spirit, first and foremost, creates a need for holy lives. And that's true for our church. See, but sadly, I first sadly believe that we have to do a little bit of undefining with holiness. We have to undefine holiness. Because for some here, and I can probably safely assume for all unchristians here, the concept of holiness is a bit archaic, right? It's a bit Victorian, isn't it? Long dresses and, and veils and the duggers. And it's like, that's what it kind of is, Right? especially in Los Angeles, our city motto is what? Well, if you want it, get after it. Isn't that basically how Los Angeles, how Angelinos live? Yeah, if you want it, take it. That's our motto. And if somebody tries to stop you, 
block them on Instagram. I don't know, whatever we do. But biblical holiness seems like the opposite of the Los Angeles motto. Sadly, holiness is more understood as a negative in our culture than a positive. Churchy prohibitions and trivial do's and don'ts that reek of mothballs. And let's be honest, um, the command for holiness makes God sound like a giant prude. The command for holiness makes God sound like a giant priss. That's what it does. And so if we see that, or if that's sort of built inside of us, is that really God's will for our life? That kind of holiness? No, thank you. Well, let's soon find out. So we're going to look at it today, because if some of us need a defining, and if some of us need a redefining of holiness, and if some of us, I'm assuming, need a reawakening of holiness. So where do we start? If we need that, where do we start? Well, we start with God. And we, discuss, and we discuss not just God, but how dangerous God is. We need to talk about how dangerous God is. See, I believe if you read the Old Testament, you can easily determine one thing. That being, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but that being God is really dangerous. If you guys remember the famous Moses, and he sees their burning bush, and God's like, slow your roll, take your shoes off. What about the Israelites who are like, let's let's go to the mountain. And God's like, you are staying off the mountain. Stay down there. What about the the, the man in the Bible who touched the Ark of the Covenant and he dropped down as dead? He was just trying to help and he touched it and he dropped down as dead. The entire book of Leviticus is written to inform God's people how to be ritually pure so that they may come near. But... But, 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 if we take the entire revelation, the whole revelation of God, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that it's not his badness, it's not a short temper, it's not a bone to pick, it's his goodness. It is God's goodness that makes his presence so dangerous. So when we read stories like the Old Testament, it's because of his goodness. You see, God is utmost perfection. God is morally pure in every way. And God is uncompromisingly good to both the just and the unjust, period. These distinguishing benchmarks of his character separate him from everything and everyone. Thus, guess what? He is holy. I quite um, agree with Puritan Stephen Charnock when he says this, and this is a pretty heavy quote. He says, it is less injury to him to deny his being than to deny the purity of it. The one who makes him know God, the other, a deformed, unlovely, and detestable God. He that saith God is not holy speaks much worse than he that saith there is no God at all. God's holiness is not an aspect of what he does. God's holiness is his very essence. So if you were like, hey, I'm going to look through the Bible and try to hunt down where God's holiness is revealed. No, no, no. You'd be wasting your time. In the essence that everything God does, everything he is, as you'll soon discover, is holy. He's holy in justice, holy in love and power and anger, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Very quickly showing us that God is not distant, separate, dangerous because he is corrupt, but because we are corrupt, but because we are More on that in a minute. 
Um, I love this quote. I thought this was a good moment to share. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest American minds of all time, he understands the negativity that comes with holiness. He says, holiness is a most beautiful, lovely thing. Men are apt to drink in strange notions of holiness from their childhood as if it were melancholy and morose and sour and unpleasant thing. But there is nothing in it but what is sweet and ravishingly lovely. lovely excuse me. Thus, it is God's will for you and I to become holy, and that is a sweet and ravishingly lovely thing. God knows this, and thus God says in 1 Peter and many other places in the Bible, he says, you shall be holy as I am holy. You shall be lovely and sweet and ravishingly lovely. See, what's extremely unpopular to say from the pulpit, especially in cities like Los Angeles, is that our character, our attitudes, our affections, and our actions has a standard already. They already have a standard for our aim. That standard has been given, but it is our choice if we want to meet it. So we don't like other people making standards for our life. We define the standards. Again, a very Angelino thing. See, the Bible's less concerned with trying to make the case that God is holy. The Bible's less concerned with trying to make the case that God is willing to work on our holiness. The most pertinent question for us here and now is that our will. Christians here, by being Christians, for us it's a resounding yes. And that's an uncompromising thing. Holiness is a, um, a partnership with the Holy Spirit. It's a partnership. Let me explain it this way. I mostly do well with farming metaphors. Deep down, I really want to be a goat farmer. Where's my wife? Is she in here? That's our dream one day. <laughs> she knows. But think of it this way. A farmer plows his field. He sows seeds and cultivates, all while knowing he is utterly dependent on forces outside of himself. Show me one farmer that thinks he can grow something. He he knows he can't. In the same way that a sailor knows he cannot create wind to sail. So for a true harvest, the farmers depend upon only what God can give. Rain, sunshine, dirt. Yet the farmer is aware enough that unless he diligently pursues, or she, I'm not farmer girl discriminant here, or she, unless that farmer is diligently pursuing his or her responsibilities, They cannot expect to harvest at the end of the season. All that to say, farming is an amazing joint session between God and farmer. The farmer supernaturally cannot do what God can do, while God won't naturally do what the farmer should do. Hopefully that makes sense. So if you're here, and if you're wondering, okay, so is this the the mac and cheese formula recipe to understanding how I get saved? Like, is this it? Is this it? Are you telling me it's a joint partnership to be in good favor with God? Is this it? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Please hear me so, so, so clearly. This is very important. What I'm not talking about when we talk about holiness and farming and, and, and bonsai trees, if we talk about all that type of stuff, that's not what I'm referring to is this is how you get good favor or how you get saved. Our salvation is not based upon our holiness. It's based upon the holiness of Jesus. Now, we're going to do a little bit of theological 
digging mud work. So bear with me. If you don't want to go there, now's a good time to open Twitter and just relax for a bit. If you do want to go there, get on. Here we go. You ready? There are two types of distinct primary blessings of holiness uh, that we lay a hold of when we make a decision to follow Jesus. Two. These are central to what it means to be a Christian. Okay? These are central. So we ought to know what they are, how they are defined, and how they are lived out. So here we go. It comes down to this. Giddy up. Here it is. Justification, super churchy word. We're going to be defining it. And sanctification. Now I'm going to shock and blast these off. You ready? Justification. Our legal standing with God as holy saints accomplished by Christ in our place. Sanctification is our progressive and ongoing work towards holiness accomplished by the Spirit at our pace. Took me four weeks to make that rhyme. Four weeks. I'm just joking. Justification, Christ's work for us. Sanctification, Christ, our spirits work in us. Justification, Christ's completed work in his death, rest, excuse me, life, death, resurrection. Sanctification, continuing work. Remember verse one where it says, you ought to walk and please God just as you're doing so more and more and more and more and more. Justification, so that we may be with God through what Christ has done. Sanctification, so that we may become like God through what the Spirit does. Justification, Christ's hidden work. It's something done in the inner man and woman. Sanctification, the Holy Spirit's visible, external work. Theologian John Calvin suggests an image that might help the relationship between those two distinct blessings of holiness, justification and sanctification. He illustrates to think of it as the sun. The sun's heat and the sun's light. They use two. Those two belong together, but they are two distinct differences. Thank you for bearing with me through that stuff. And if they're confused at all, if they're ever confused, that is murky water. Meaning some people, some Christians think their favor and their relationship with God depends more on their sanctification rather than the holiness. And do you know what kind of relationship that creates? A really unsafe, nervous, there's no peace, there's no joy. Oh God. But then there are people who just see justification, just justification. Thus, they see what, what Jesus did, and they also see eternally, like we're totally fine. But there's no understanding what the Holy Spirit's role is today in this moment now. So they're determined on seeing God in heaven. Thank you, Jesus, justification. But they're oblivious to what the Holy Spirit is doing in, what, in their lives in this moment. So it didn't make a lick of sense, again, for us to not talk about the Holy Spirit's role in all of this. So all of that to say, the requirement for holiness is not one of merit, but one of evidence. Holiness is not something for merit to get in good with God. It's something that's evident within our life. Should be evident within our life. As Christians, you should care. We should care about evidence. We should care about becoming what we are, becoming what we believe. So Paul, the author tonight, knows that, and he directs our attention, get this, to some of the most personal yet sharp words. These are really personal words, and they're pretty sharp. Let's read on. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God. What was it again? Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Ooh, Paul, where are you going? That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one trespasses and wrong his brother in that matter because the Lord is an avenger and all these things, as we told you beforehand, solemnly warns you 
For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Now, it's these type of verses that get a bad rap and put a lot of critique on God on why is he so concerned with hanky-panky? Like, there's kids in the room. Why is he so concerned with that? Like, ease up, God. Clearly, this whole holiness, this is like where the holiness gets the whole negative, negative aspect, right? Out of all the evidences that could have been talked about with, 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 with holiness, all the evidences, why does Paul talk about this? Why not pick on stealing? Why not pick on racism? Why talk about this? Well, on one hand, yes, the Thessalonican men and women had come out of a gross idolatry. Their religions were filled with uh, prostitution. That was part of their religion. And they had little or no restraint with the immoral, yes. But on the other hand, Paul continually brings this to the surface. Why? What is he trying? What point is he trying to make with constantly talking about sexual immorality with holiness? Let me read a couple verses. I'm going to rattle these off. 1 Corinthians 3 should be on your screen. I'm going to read this first. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Then watch this. He does it again. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. He's telling us. But the sexual immoral person who sins against his own body. Or do you not know? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul wants us to be so engulfed with the idea of nearness to God's presence by his spirit that okayness, or callousness, or permission of sin should feel like a bolt of lightning through our entire body. One of the diagnostics if we're pursuing holiness is not only to feel that bolt of lightning, but to respond to it, also known as conviction with the Holy Spirit and repentance. So let me just say this. Again, not a popular thing to talk about in Los Angeles. The way we conduct our thoughts the way we conduct our emotions, and the way we conduct our bodies is one of the most prominent evidences of a life that accepts and is passionate about the truth of God. Author John Owen wrote, holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel in our souls. Another way of saying it could be the realization of justification is like gas to a fire and the heat for our sanctification. But our verses, I think, make it more real. Look at verse 7. Our God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, no, 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 I'll do whatever I want. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. These verses are uncovering that our holiness isn't merely about purity. I hope not everybody's just seen like, Casey sure is hounding on purity and morality today. There's tons of Pharisees and tons of religious people, but are they holy? Gospel holiness is not about expertise in like the practice of virtues. Nailed it, nailed it, nailed it. Holy. Holiness is not about, no, let me say it this way. Holiness is about giving over our everything, not just our ethics. That's what God's asking for. So sexual purity, what we're reading about right now, is simply a practical application of the most basic truths in regards to our holiness. And that means it's about belonging. 
sexual purity is about our belonging. Belonging to God. And what we belong to, we become. We were just in Texas like two weeks ago and we get off the airplane and we're there with my kids, their first time to Texas. We're off the airplane for like three minutes, walking through the gate and our daughter, Violet, looks up to us and she goes, I don't get it. Why is everybody so calm? She was freaking out. She's only used to Los Angeles. And this just progressed more and more. If you guys have left Los Angeles, you get it. As we're walking down the street and people keep waving at me, it's like, am I fly down? Like, why do people keep waving? People keep smiling. Emily one time is like, that cop just profiled you. I'm like, no, he's just waving. One guy, as we walked into the mall, stuck his hand out. I thought he was panhandling. He's trying to shake my hand. Mm-mm. Moving along, pal. I ain't touching you. What we realized as we were there for three days being around the world's nicest people in Texas, they're so kind, and we're just like, "Mm." hmm. What we realized after dwelling in Los Angeles for so long is we became Los Angeles. What, what What we lived into, what we belonged to, we became. So just as John Stott said in his final sermon, our becoming like Jesus is the grand opus of what God wants for each and every one of you. That's it. This is what God wants. That's it. Author Jerry Bridges in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, says it like this. He is called the Holy Spirit, and he is sent primarily to make us holy, to conform us to the character of God. Essentially, to be holy is to be like Jesus. So it's to do, respond, think, listen, treat men, treat women, treat intimacy, and so on as Jesus would treat them as God would treat them. So to be holy is to act like Jesus. To be holy in those decisions is to act like God. Christians are to say, oh, yeah, right. And if we don't say that, then Paul would say this to us. If that's not our immediate response, Paul would respond like this. Verse 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, or do you not know Or do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you not have any idea that you belong to him? That you are not your own, belonging, belonging, becoming, becoming. Friends, this is not some poetic thought. Paul, saying these words as a devout Jewish man who now believes in Jesus as a Messiah, what he's saying is scandalous. I mean, he can get himself in a lot of trouble for saying, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Temple theology should get us fired up because what this is saying, what Paul is dying for us to know, that you, that this is the convergence of heaven and earth. This is where God has been working, this is what God has been working out through human history, this kind of holy union between heaven and earth. Can I just, can we just, I just want to go off for a minute because this stuff melts my noodle. It gets me so fired up. If we think about what started as the very first temple, that being the Garden of Eden, that's the Garden of Eden, it's the very first temple. Why? Why would we say that? Because it's where God meets with man and where man meets with God. That changed due to man's rebellion. And then get this, throughout Israel's, God's people's history, All of a sudden, they start meeting in a tabernacle, which is like a mobile temple. It's a tent, basically. And God wants to be in their very midst. God's like, no, no, I want to be in the center. 
And then all of a sudden, King Solomon comes around because King David wasn't allowed to build it, and he builds this gorgeous temple. And the day it's finally done, and they do this grand opening, this consecration, this dedication, fire and cloud fall from the sky, and everybody in the city is like erupted with praise. They're like, yes, the Spirit of God is here. God is here. God is have heaven and earth. And then all of a sudden, because of man's rebellion, it, again, it fell apart. It was torn down, exile. But get this. Later, they want to go back and rebuild the temple brick by brick by brick. They want to go back and they're fighting off enemies and they're super, super, super amped up about it. And so they built this sort of like shabby, like humble temple for God. And they're on the day, they're so stoked to dedicate it and they're going to stand back because like the fire's going to fall again. And they're like, here you go, God. Nothing. Not even a spark. Not even the smell of like a lit match. (laughs) Nothing happened. Why? Why didn't God's presence go in there? Well, we find out in the Gospel of John. Allow me to read it to you. So they said to him, is talking to Jesus, what sign do you show us for us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Why wasn't this all of a sudden this fire fall down when the temple was rebuilt? Because God says, no, I'm done meeting in geography. I'm done meeting in zip codes. I'm done meeting in addresses. I'm done meeting in places built by man's hands. Jesus is now the temple. So you want to know how heaven meets earth? Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. No more things made by man's hands, God says. But let's go a step further. What happened with Christ's ascension? And Jesus is like, I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to go to the Father. What happened? Anybody remember? Where would the meeting place of God and man be then in the world? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Us. Ah! Oh my gosh. Us. We're not called Airbnb. We're not called hotel. We're not called home. We're not called residence. By choosing the word temple describes the Spirit's dwelling, and you and I... Oh, and it's so amazing. I don't know how much you guys have got like your, your architectural blueprint of temples down in your brain. You guys have been studying that. It's, it's great stuff. But there's all these different rooms. But when this, this word is used by Paul, guess what room he's talking about? The inner sanctum of where God would meet. He says the temple of the Holy Spirit, that's where God would meet, the inner sanctum. Not the outside court, not the basketball court, not the attic, not the bathroom. God's like, I'm going to meet in the holy of holies. That's where I'm going to hang out in my people. So it goes from Jesus to now us is where heaven is to meet earth. God wants his people holy. God wants his church holy for heaven to meet earth until the final days where we're fully with the Lord, the beautiful Revelation 21. To disregard any of this emotionally, physically, spiritually is to disregard God. And who? Verse 8, therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So we'll wrap it up with this. Here's 
exactly what I just said, but with much more bite to it. Maybe I'm too fearful to say it in my own words. This is pretty sharp. Jerry Bridges again. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives at our salvation, he comes to us holy in practice. If there's not then at least a yearning in our hearts to live a holy life pleasing to God, we need to seriously question our faith in Christ if it's genuine. Belonging to God in mind, in heart, in body is our principle for holy living. If this is true, and I believe it is, then guess what? Authenticity is not the goal of your discipleship groups in this church. Knowledge is not the goal of a discipleship within this church. Emotionalism is not the goal of a discipleship of our gatherings, our church, whatever. Experience is not the goal of our discipleship, our gatherings, our church. Finding best friends is not the goal of our discipleships, neighborhood dinners, church. If those were our goals, guess what we would be? Bonsai trees. Holiness is our aim in every form of life. Theologian and, you know, theologian and pastor J.I. Packer says holiness is actually the true health of the person. So every professing Christian must ask yourself daily, moment by moment, is there evidence that I belong and am I becoming? And some of the most immediate evidences of that will be how we respond to right now. Together with one another where heaven meets earth. You see, worship is a realization of God's holiness. We worship first and foremost because he's holy. Not because we get a bunch of stuff from him. Not because we're commanded to. We worship because God is holy, pure and simple. That is the foundational base. So today, the Holy Spirit is going to be calling you to worship in a way that transcends all the sort of crap that may have happened in your life and say, worship because he's holy. So worship this morning with arms surrendered. You can come to the carpet. You can stand and sing with loud voices. The second evidence is prayer of a life that is trying to pursue holiness. Why prayer? Because prayer is the awareness of God's holiness. I want everybody to feel this, that holiness should be one of the most comforting aspects of the Holy Spirit. Holiness. Why? Because if God is truly that good, truly that majestic, truly that upright, and truly that most perfect, then what we ask for in prayer is not, God, don't ruin me. God, don't do this to me. God, don't do this that to me, whatever it might be. And to understand, to come to him in prayer is saying, I completely trust you with everything. So tonight, if you need prayer, we're going to have two people on that wall between the trees and two people on that wall be- between the trees. Go to them and receive prayer. Even if your prayer is, I've recognized in my life that I have not been holy in body. I have not been holy in thought. I have not been holy in actions. I have not been holy in desire. Even if it's just that, God instill in us a pursuit of holiness. And the last, last thing I'll say as far as a response and evidence, tonight, we're, tonight, I'm so used to the other place. What we get to do today is we get to do communion. Oh, that's a celebration of imputed and received holiness. Christians, this is for you and you alone. When you grab the double stack cups, the bottom of the bread, the top of the drink, the reason you can meet with God, be here, heaven, meet earth, is because of what we're drinking and getting into our gut, that Jesus made this possible. Amen? Let's pray.